and thank you so much for joining us again. Um, welcome to the third installment of Zooming In On Hate. It's our monthly webinar slash podcast, bringing together the brightest minds to figure out solutions to hate speech and disinformation. Hello, welcome everybody. And each month our plan is to speak to different voices from, from tech, civil society, law enforcement and, and policy makers to zone in on the latest social media trends. And this webinar is part of the European Observatory of Online Hate, or EOOH in short. And today we'll be focusing on the dangers posed by French social media platforms and the role of open source intelligence in today's news gathering. So I'm Lydia Alcouri and I'm with TextGain. And my name is Jordi Nainais. I'm the co-founder of Dare to be Grey. So this, this month, we're really, really pleased to have two experts who are utilizing tech to expose the dangers of disinformation and the spread of hate speech on social media. First up, we're going to speak to the European Observatory of Online Hate core expert on law enforcement and the head of the TechScan Academy, Olivier Kauberg, about the dangers posed by fringe media platforms. And then we're going to speak to Amra Dorjbayar, um, who is a fact checker and data journalist with VRT, the public service broadcaster in Flanders. And, um, and we'll be talking to him specifically about his use of open source intelligence in today's news gathering. Yeah, and we'll kick off this webinar with a little chat and afterwards we'll open the floor for any questions you are having. Um, you can use the chat function in Zoom to submit your questions at any time, but uh, you also have the option to unmute yourself and ask your questions directly after our conversation. But do know that the audio will be recorded for the podcast. And in the meantime, you can also turn your camera on if you like, so we can see your beautiful faces because that won't be recorded. Fantastic. So let's start the ball rolling with Olivier. Olivier, thanks for joining us on Zooming In on Hate. And can you just give us a little overview of fringe platforms in, in the EU at the moment and what you're seeing? Yeah. Um, first of all, thanks for having me. But to understand um, what fringe social media uh, or the fringe social media landscape is about, we need to understand the social media uh, landscape in general, or better said, your social media landscape. Because the social media landscape is different for every one of us, and it depends on your age, your gender, your location, uh, the language you speak, your religion, and so on. Um, in the ten or in the list of the ten most used platforms, there are, for example, four Chinese platforms, and um, I think these platforms are not really the platforms you and I will use. Um, so the most used platforms are not the ones that um, your social circle or your professional um, circle will use. So if we talk about fringe social media platforms, we talk uh, for us about smaller platforms. So platforms with a low number of users and mostly ideologically concentrated. Uh, platforms such as Gap, Parler, or BitChute. Um, but I would like um, also like to emphasize that not all fringe platforms are necessarily bad or are flooded with uh, hate speech. There are also smaller platforms that focus on very niche hobbies or have nothing to do with politics. So I think we can all envision what an Instagram feed looks like or a Facebook page or maybe even TikTok if you're younger. Um, so how do these differ with the, the fringe platforms? What's, what's the difference between the, the mainstream platforms like your Facebook, your Instagram, your TikTok um, and the fringe platforms you just mentioned? Yeah. Um, the fringe social media platforms are, are smaller, um, only a few million uh, users. It, it sounds maybe a lot, but Facebook, for example, has 2.3 billion users. Um, so we could also see them as a, some type of echo chamber because some fringe platforms are also uh, centered about one ideology. It could be right-wing ideology, uh, misogyny, um, or conspiracy theories. And also, other than that, um, they are not that different. So uh, some of these fringe platforms, they look the same as the big platforms. If you compare how Gap looks, 
um, to Twitter, uh, you will actually see that there are a lot of similarities in the interactions users can also have, um, how they like posts, how they can reshare posts, and so on. So um, the main difference between the mainstream platforms, if we can call them the big platforms, the mainstream platforms, and those fringe platforms are actually the content on the platform. So um, um, the 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 uh, how these uh, how this content is ideologically built up. Thanks, Olivier. And um, so, why why do people frequent fringe platforms? What's the motivation behind it, and why be on both? Why be on fringe and mainstream? Yeah. Um, some people indicate that on those big platforms like Twitter or, or Facebook, they feel that they are silenced um, and that they can't express their feelings anymore. That they will, um, yeah, that they, that their messages will be removed by the content moderation or the the policy, um, and that there is no freedom of speech anymore on these platforms. And they hope to find that again on uh, on these fringe platforms. So, so if 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 that that longing for freedom, looking for freedom of speech, um, is the reason to people to to head to those more fringe platforms. Um, is the behavior over there also different as compared to to your Facebook? Yeah, absolutely. Um, with the dashboard of the of the European Observatory, we have looked at the language or the difference in language that they use on um, these big platforms compared to the smaller platforms. And um, what have we uh, unfortunately concluded is that the fringe platforms that we have monitored um, contain a lot more of this toxic language. So that we could see that some of these profiles who have a profile on a big platform and on a fringe platform, that um, the same person uh, uses much more toxic language on these uh, smaller uh, platforms. So how would you describe the role of these fringe platforms, Olivier, What in, in your professional experience? Um, mainly that these fringe platforms function as some type of echo chamber. So it means that you have a, a room full of people who will uh, agree with most things that you say. And that could be quite dangerous because um, there is no one anymore who's challenging an opinion. Um, if this um, opinion or what you want to express is, it could also be considered hate speech. That could be very dangerous because it's you will get into a, a spiral and and become much more. Um, yeah, you will post much more hate speech because no one opposes that uh, that message. And I I, th I think this is where it becomes really interesting, right? Because um, um, the concept of an echo chamber and um, not being. Uh, exposed to different opinions or perspectives, they, they often get linked to processes like radicalization, uh, polarization, but also offline harm. So from your perspective, what are the most concerning um, trends or, or issues related to these fringe platforms? For me, the most concerning trend is that these fringe platforms also function as an incubator of uh, dark whistles and hate memes. So um, this has led in a lot of uh, cases to uh, the normalization of certain hate speech terms, emoji, or memes. Um, so yeah, what we see on the bigger platforms is then suddenly um, some of these, these um, terms or emoji are suddenly used in a, in a different context, um, even though we could clearly see that they want to um, mean something else with it and that the broader public um, also start using that term and then um, spreads more and more hate speech or hate speech dog whistles. So can I ask you about the traffic between fringe and mainstream platforms? How, how does the movement work from one to the other? And can you give any concrete examples of, of how you see them being used? Yeah, it could go super fast. Um, even the same day when something happens, um, a dog whistle can appear on, on the bigger platforms. For example, um, in the case of um, Ahmad Arbery, I think it's already two, two years or three years ago. Um, so in a, in a small um, village in, in US, um, they uh, report a burglary and um, in a village nearby, um, 
Ahmad Arbery runs through the village. At that moment, it is not clear if this guy is the suspect or if he uh, has nothing to do with the situation. But um, two people in a truck stop him. Fight breaks out. And um, at the end, Arbery, uh, yeah, Arbery is shot in the back. So um, on fringe social media, we saw a big discussion about, oh, it's again a black guy, this has happened. And suddenly someone comes up with, hey, the guy was jogging and the N-word sounds a bit similar. We cannot use the N-word anymore on uh, the big social media platforms. Let's just use the word jogger instead of the N-word. So only a few hours later, we saw on a platform like Twitter, suddenly a spike in the use of the word jogger. And um, this just came from 4chan. On 4chan, they had this discussion. A few hours later, the same guys who were on uh, the platform 4chan went to Twitter or another platform. Um, and then they started using the word jogger. And uh, now two, three years later, they still use the word jogger as an equivalent of the of the N word. So this 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 sounds like it's a pretty fluid and flexible dynamic that's happening over there, right? So it's 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 real world events inspire people to use different words and then spread that also to mainstream platforms. So for first line practitioners. How can we track this? How, how, how can we stay informed on these movements? Because it feels like if people use the word jogger, for example, for me, that wouldn't be a red flag. But of course, it is a red flag. How, how can we approach this as a practitioner? Um, as a practitioner, I would say it's very important to, to um, stay connected in the, in the network of practitioners. Um, this could be through uh, different projects and, and networks like the Radicalization and Awareness Network in Europe, or um, the European Observatory of Online Hate, where we have gathered a lot of uh, experts. Um, so only together we can uh, monitor and keep each other um, up to date of, of the latest trends of online hate, because um, it is basically impossible to go on every fringe social media platform or even any other platform and read all the content. On YouTube, for example, they post more than 24 hours of um, footage every minute, I think. Um, so it is impossible to track everything by yourself. We need to work together as practitioners and keep each other posted of what we um, observe on, uh, on, um, on the platforms. Um, with the, uh, with the European Observatory, we are very lucky to have this dashboard where we can make these searches ourselves and have the dashboard uh, monitor what is going on, and then we can uh, share this in uh, in our network of experts. Um, and Olivier, if anybody's listening um, either to the webinar or to the podcast, and they're, they don't hang out on fringe media platforms, I would say they'll struggle to understand why there's you know, very little or no moderation no protection from abuse or threats. And I mean, what would you say about that? Why, how are they allowed to exist without the kind of community standards and rules that are expected from mainstream platforms that Facebook, Instagram, Twitter? Yeah, well, these platforms, they offer what people look for. So it means that there is still a big problem in society. So first of all, outside what happen, happens on, uh, in the online environment, we keep or we need to keep investing in people, in prevention, prevention programs, and so on. But um, as long as this problem exists, these fringe platforms will exist. Um, but the platform by itself, um, they will continue existing even if they don't have moderation or content moderation, community standards, and so, and so on. Um, so we need to focus on the people themselves. We will not or we will never obtain that all of these platforms will have good content moderation, even though um, organizations like Tech Against Terrorism have already done a great job by, um, um, by helping these platforms to install a content moderation. But as long as we um, have a polarized uh, society, we will have people looking for this platform. So um, yeah, we need to focus on the people and this is only um, a symptom. So since we're, we're still labeling it fringe platforms, I'm, I'm just wondering how, how big of a threat is this? 
um, is it substantial or is it actually still in the fringes? Um, I think fringe means that this is a small platform, but it doesn't mean that it has no influence in, I would say, even the contrary. Um, it has a big influence on the content that we see online, but also on the people. The content, because of these dark whistles, hate memes that are created in this ecosystem. And um, on the other end, the influence it can have on the people, as in this is an echo chamber. It will give people only access to one um, political opinion and it will enforce even the, let's say, the bad habit of spreading hate speech. Um, but it can also have an influence on real life events. Um, in the Netherlands, last year, there was a statue that had, uh, where the face has uh, been painted blue. Well, this is also something we saw on 4chan um, called Operation Blue the Jew, where they said, make the uh, faces of a Jewish person or someone who collaborates with Jews make make the faces blue. So we saw a lot of faces, uh, a lot of photos with people from um, Silicon Valley where their uh, faces were made blue. Well, in the Netherlands, um, this statue was more or less similar. Um, it was a statue of Kaplan Berix, uh, someone who had uh, who was in the resistance during uh, World War II, and they had uh, sprayed his face blue. So we saw that that online operation even had an influence on uh, offline events. So um, yeah, it's very important that uh, that we know what happens and see how uh, how big the threat can be and what the threat is also. And it's great to hear Olivia that you and and experts like you are keeping an eye on fringe platforms and tracking the the kind of movement back and forth and the re potential real life harm of it. Um, if you had a magic wand to make it all better and and make the problem just go away, uh, what would you do hypothetically? Um, well, unfortunately, I do not have a magic wand, but uh, no more war, world peace, no more hate speech online, etc. But I think that's everybody wants. But unfortunately, we do not have a magic wand. Yeah, so we better just keep doing what we're doing for the moment. Olivier, thanks. That's all we can do. <laughs> Great. Thanks a million uh, for, for, for talking to us. And we've got some questions in the chat. Um, we have a question. Do you have information why, sorry, it's disappeared. Do you have information why more um, popular, why fringe media are more popular in one country than in others? In Hungary, we have far right party voted into the parliament, but Facebook, YouTube are still the main platforms that are still the most popular ones and fringe media are not that widespread. Um, I wouldn't say it is uh, specifically one country where, um, where the platforms are more popular, but I think this is a problem about the language they use. Um, content moderation is very strong in English. They pick up the, um, the latest trends immediately but it kind of makes sense because most um, online uh, um, social media users are English speakers. Also the companies, their main language is English. So they will also focus on English in the content moderation. In Hungarian, I, I think, I'm not 100% sure, is the content moderation so strong and um, therefore they have more space to maneuver on these platforms and they won't be silenced more. Um, is this a call for um, letting people do whatever they want so they don't go to uh, fringe social media? Absolutely not. Um, I think it's a call to uh, invest in more um, or in better content moderation in smaller language, of smaller languages as well. Great, thanks. Um, are there any other questions in the room? Feel free to unmute yourself or put something in the chat. And in the meantime, I do also have a follow-up question. Um, so, so do you think that um, content moderation um, enforced through legislation is a solution here, Olivier? Or are we looking for a more bottom-up approach? I think we should look for a combination of the two. I mean, it's always good to uh, work from both sides. I think it's very good to have a legislation that um, sets some minimum requirements um, so that platforms can also not say, well, we're doing something. No, they need to um, uh, work towards a 
certain standards, but we as, and then I say we is everybody, we should also become upstanders. If we see something, we should point it out, we should um, tell that person that it's not acceptable um, without attacking them, of course. Um, an opinion always comes from somewhere, maybe some frustration, maybe a personal experience. We should never um, focus on the person, but on the language that has been used. And um, I think everybody should step up if we see something uh, that we can't tolerate on social media. I'm seeing a lot of a lot of nods on Zoom to what you've just said, <laughs> Olivier. Thanks so much for joining us. And if there aren't any more questions, we'll we'll leave it there. Thanks, Olivia Kauberg, for your contribution. And we'll, now we'll move on to our second guest, Amra Doj Bayar. Yes, thank you so much for joining us, Amra. Um, and just to get us started, can you tell us a bit about your work with open source intelligence and the role it plays in today's news gathering? So you work with VRT, can you maybe speak a bit to that? Yeah, um, I, I started at the VRT in, in 2016, and at that time, OSINT was something very fresh, new. There was, I think Bellingcat was just, just starting. So the fact that I started in that period it opened this whole new thing for me like something that i could pursue that classic journalism was not uh, doing yet which which means like um, so osint stands for open source uh, intelligence it, it pretty much means that 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 we use all kinds of openly available information that you can access with just an internet connection and a laptop and it helps uh, classic journalism to find new stories, but also to verify facts, uh, to have a deeper understanding and, and deeper analysis of what's, ha what's happening in the world. Let me just take you a step back there, Amra. Can you tell our, our listeners um, a little bit more about VRT and talk to us about how your role has evolved with time? Yeah, so VRT is a Flemish uh, pub public broadcasting. We have uh, TV news, we have online news, we have uh, radio news. So it's just it's 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 you know it's one of the biggest uh, newsrooms in in, in in Flanders. And uh, what I do there is I'm part of the uh, it's called the DDT cell um, DDT, which stands for Data Disinformation and 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 Technology. There, I work as a data journalist and as a, and as a fact checker. But but what it is is it's it's really a playground of all kinds of new journalistic um, challenges, digital challenges. Uh, it's it's about data analysis. It's about fact checking. It's about verification of of uh, user generated contents. Um, at this moment, we are uh, very much focusing on the Ukraine war, fact checking and verifying a lot of these user-generated contents that come from there and we try to determine like what we are seeing is it uh, where is it filmed uh, or where is the photo taken uh, and when is it filmed and what's the context and we try to verify all these different information so what what is the difference between classic journalism a person going out in the street with his notepad and his microphone and an OSINT journalist I think the main difference is that in OSINT journalism, all of the information that we investigate are readily and openly available for everyone. So you don't need to have like specific access to a politician or specific source that you like that only you have access to. And open source journalism is like, if you have a laptop and an internet connection, then you could do exactly the same kind of investigations uh, uh, that we do. Um, but also one of the difference is, is the community around it. In, 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 in classic investigative journalism, of course, collaborate sometimes together, but it's, 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 it's also very competitive. It's like, it's my, um, my scoop and I have to be the first. So you would really hide off your uh, the things that we that you found in OSINT as I've seen um, growing throughout the years is that um, the people are very generous with their information like hey this is a new tool I found maybe this is a new field of uh, 
uh, area that we should investigate. And in that sense, I feel that in the OSINT community, there is the idea of, you know, the more you share, the richer you become. Um, because, because um, yeah, you have shared uh, the tool that you found and someone else has shared it. And then now those two tools are in, in available for both of you. Um, so, so then your the collection of things, uh, techniques, and and tools that you use, it be just becomes bigger and bigger, and um, it's uh, it becomes uh, much richer. And it, another thing is also the um, I think the accountability is is a bit different. Of course, journalists in classic sense they are accountable to the information um, uh, that they that they are that they give to public but for a very long time there was this uh, the sense of you know um this is true because i've said it because i'm an authoritative journalist you know uh, i did my thing and and people don't trust the authoritative uh, 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 the authority of you know journalists and expert anymore um so in that sense what OSINT journalists do is is we not just say something and give information but actually we have to provide the evidence of our information to the public uh, ocean journalism is much more transparent and, and accountable thanks amra and can you tell us about the different areas OSINT can be used on so i think it's quite theoretical so far like Specifically, what areas of journalism can you apply it to? I mean, it's 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 not just about different topics. It's about the kind of um, uh, tools and 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 uh, and information that you can use, and for a broad spectrum of uh, of investigations, we use it, for example, to uh, fact check claims about the COVID virus. We are using it now in the uh, in the war in ukraine to verify uh, user generated content videos and 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 posts on on social media whether they're true true or not we used it to investigate uh, extremism we used it for uh, to investigate isis uh, uh, and extreme rights groups um, uh, also corruption um, so yeah it's it's it OSINT is not so much um, about um, uh, what type of information. It's it's a way of thinking. It's a, it's a way of uh, analyzing uh, all kinds of uh, uh, open source information that are readily available. It can also be about analyzing statistics and data of government. Uh, 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 organizations uh, find pollution, uh, uh, problems with uh, pollution, uh, and, and and stuff like that. And, and I, I personally, I think that's that's the coolest part about OSINT. It's that it's open source, right? So we all have access to those sources of information. Um, from your perspective, is there really a difference between journalistic-based OSINT and citizen-led OSINT, like Bellingcat, that originated from a, a citizen collective? Or is it just the same thing done by different groups of people? I mean, if you have a common, I mean, ethical value, which is factfulness and truthfulness, then it doesn't matter who, who does it. Anyone who has a laptop and an internet connection and who has the value of being factful and uh, who wouldn't mind being um, double checked and, and criticized and that's because that's what we do like we were we're verifying each other's findings uh, again because there are a lot of people who who does OSINT and, and publish like bad information that are that they made some mistakes but uh, the idea of OSINT is that that things has to be be able to be verified so it's not just about me telling hey this is the truth but I actually have to prove it and someone has to check my evidence and and you know like dig deeper in and 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 criticize it like are you sure about it and and so that that makes it the OSINT such such a strong thing it's it's because the not just the investigations or the sources but also 
the proof, the evidence is readily available for all to see. And if you're willing to look at it, then you, uh, you would come to the same conclusion. Thanks, Amra. Um, now, so I'd love to get really into a concrete example of, uh, you, you, uh, I know already, because we had a, a chat about it in the pre-interview, of how you used OSINT at the beginning of the Ukraine war, and maybe give us another example from um, using OSINT in your work in Belgium. I think before the war happened, there were, there were chatters and there were like videos of tanks being stationed and, and, and a lot of OSINT investigators were, were tracking like where they are exactly. And you know, oh, there are, there are Russian tanks in, in, in Belarus uh, or in Crimea. And there were this whole movement of, of military equipment being uh, you know, uh, moved around. So there was already, I mean, for, for some time now, like some pressures, oh, something big is going to happen. But at the same time, we were not really much seeing like a broader, this, this propaganda machine uh, that usually starts when Russia wants to do something. So we were not really seeing that. So there was some kind of hope at the time that, oh, um, okay, military uh, equipments are moving around, but they're not so much, the, the propaganda hasn't really started yet. So maybe it's just a threat. They're not really going to do something. But then uh, I think from a couple of weeks before the start of the war and a couple of days, really, we started seeing these online contents that said, uh, you know, videos and stuff that said like, yo, the, uh, hey, the, the Ukrainians are actually attacking innocent uh, Russian speaking citizen uh, in, uh, in Ukraine. Um, they're even attacking the border of, of Russia, like there was this video of a tank going over the border. And, and I also remember um, um, this reporter who said that there was a roadside bomb that the Ukrainians uh, um, have detonated that killed uh, three civilians in, uh, in a car. And um, so they say, like, okay, um, uh, they go um, and then they filmed the whole thing. But then OSINT investigators uh, looked at the footage and they analyzed, like, the, the impact, but also the corpse that was inside and, 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 and determined, like, okay, this cannot be from a bomb because these are, like, tiny little holes and most likely from, from bullets. Uh, but also the corpse that were, the, that were inside, uh, one of the, I mean, the skull was very cleanly cut open as if, as if you would do in, in, in a mortuarium or uh, when a person is dead. So from that, they could determine that it's actually um, a body from a corpse from morgue that was uh, uh, put there to, you know, to uh, put in scene uh, this uh, whole idea of, uh, you know, Ukrainians was uh, attacking the Russians. I also remember seeing a, a video of a, of a man who said uh, he stepped on a mine and he was like crying and people were trying to help him. And his his legs was uh, uh, um, was exploded and 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 uh, and gone, but then we saw this really tiny, um, shiny uh, like a, like an iron rod that are usually used by people who have already lost their legs and that you can attach it to a prosthetic. So it was like this acting, uh, you know, enacting of of certain incidents uh, that we've seen. And from there on, we knew, okay, I think something is going to start now. And, um, and a few days later, uh, yeah, um, it actually, the war actually started. The invasion happened. I yeah. mean, that is, I mean, it's so refreshing as an avid news consumer to know that you're forensically examining evidence and footage to to make those kind of deductions it, it's great and that's probably might be a bit of a remote example so closer to home is there can you give an example of a similar kind of OSINT operation if you like in in Belgium or or, or the Netherlands I mean um, so before that we we mostly were focusing on on the COVID pandemic and a lot of uh, disinformation 
um, that were happening there. And, and one of the thing was, uh, um, it's, it's actually funny that it's someone uh, from one of those uh, anti-vax, uh, anti-COVID measures um, uh, groups, they said that the VRT made this huge mistake. Like they made, they are lying to you. They made uh, like a calculation error in their analysis. Um, and uh, so, but we have the truth. Uh, we have analyzed the amount of people who died uh, because of, uh, you know, um, uh, during the, uh, the pandemic time. And so they made this, um, uh, you know, data analysis and they they sent it to all the newsrooms uh, and they also put it on their on their social media and then so of course at that moment because i made the, the data analysis of those uh, uh, of the covid cases um so yeah like i got in shock like did i make a mistake or something like that and then we would uh, analyze uh, their findings um and um um uh, we found that that actually they made a, a grave error like just a simple mathematical uh error um uh, they had like the amount of people who died but they had like a coma um uh, um a decimal number which is not possible because you know you cannot be partly dead um and uh, but but at this moment this uh, 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 uh wrong analysis is still on their social media and still being spread around um so you know things like that would happen um, a lot they would use existing information to create a fake narrative or or make some some uh, a wrong analysis uh, to to make a point um and it's our job to to um, look for those information that are spread a lot um, and to fact check them and to 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 give the right um, the correct uh, information. So after after listening to these these great examples, um, I'm just thinking both the war in Ukraine and COVID, of course, are, are pretty heated debates and discussions online. So I'm sure you must also be facing some kind of backlash, maybe people who are attacking you or conspiracy theorists. How, how do you cope with that? How do you deal with that? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, they believe that we are getting money from, uh, I don't know, Soros, Bill Gates, or whatever. They, they think that we, you know, that we're getting uh, rich. Uh, um, so there is this whole anti-fact-checkers anti movement the, because they, they also see that because of the work that we do, fact-checking the claims that some of the contents are being removed from uh, from uh, social media, but it's not, of course, not it's not us that are removing them, but it, we're just giving correct um, information about the claims. So how I deal with it, I think in the beginning of my career, I had this great hope that if you would give you know, just the right information to people, they would come to the right, uh, to, they, they would come to their senses. And if you can give the evidence why this information um, is, is wrong, um, and not just saying, hey, uh, I'm a fact checker, uh, and what I say is the truth. That's not what we do, we give the evidence. Um, so my hope was that uh, if we do that, then uh, people will come to their senses and they would um, understand it. And I think by now I kind of have given up that specific hope in that sense that, I mean, the people who already don't believe in those things that we say are not the people that are actually reading us and, and actually looking for those information. So. I think my hope now is that we can give people who want to be truthful, who, who would, you know, um, who are having these debates and, and with conspiracy theorists and stuff like that, we can give them the tools and the, and the information to help them to use, to persuade their parents and grandmas and, and families um, to you know, come 
to to their senses. I think. I'm in my case. Um, uh, I am from Mongolia, so Mongolia has always had a good relationship with Russia, and and my parents they have this great affection for for Russia, so they are naturally more sympathetic towards the Russians, and and we've had. Uh, uh, my, I, I remember my mom called me uh, in the beginning of the war and, and she said like, hey Amra, how long do you think it will take um, until uh, Russia has liberated Ukraine? I mean, the term uh, liberation, it always, it already says something like what's, what, what she thinks is the truth. Um, I also had a, a conversation with my dad uh, and he asked me like, very bluntly like, so Amra, are they forcing you at your work to speak badly about Russia? Are you forced to, to uh, you know, uh, make uh, Russia bad or seem bad or something like that? And um, so we, they, they are tough conversations, but at the same time, I could show them, how do we know what we know? Like what happened in, in Bucha? How do we know what we know? Oh, these are the satellite images, and these were taken on that day. These were taken on that day, and these corpses stayed for so long. So, in that sense, um, I can have, uh, I can, I can convince them to, to think differently, uh, in a sense. And so, I think, like, my hope is that if we do the fact checks, if we do the verifications, if we, you know, make it publicly available, the fact checks that. Uh, people can use it um, in their conversations with their parents, with their family members, with their friends. Um, that's that's my hope. Yeah, I, I I hope you're I hope you're right too, and I hope it works. And you know that's the motivation I think behind probably most of the people working in this field is that we we just have to keep chipping away at it, don't we? But um, I I wonder. Um, do fact checkers get caught out themselves? Do you think? Um, has it ever happened to you? Absolutely. One of the things is that I mean, we also have to be aware that we are people. We're just humans, and we have our own biases. We we have our own things that we believe or want to believe. We have to be aware of that and and um, temper down our own biases to to look for the right information and to to be critical of our own findings and that's the whole process of OSINT is that okay oh I, I found something this is a great information but then take a step back is is this is this what I'm uh, what I think it is or like what is the proof like how can we like what is the what is the 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 evidence and 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 is the evidence really what it says? Um, so there is always this double check. From my own perspective, I can say that there have been a few times that I've like almost claimed to the wrong conclusion, but then someone else came and pointed out that that hey, this is not this is not right, and then um, it actually you know stopped the. Uh, the the publication so that's like uh, sometimes an article is 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 already finished and we're you know ready to hit the publish button but then you look at it again and then some see some some mistakes or something and then the whole work that you did you, you throw it in the in the garbage but that's a good thing that 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 you didn't be you wasn't uh, hasty um, didn't uh, press the publish button before all these double checks were done. So exactly on that, you know, that that kind of track, you know, the well, I'd love to know what you think about the Russian state broadcaster journalist Marina Ovskaya. Oh, no, let me get her name exactly. It's Ovsanikova. She was the person who protested on state TV. I mean, it feels like that's an example of who can get to the bottom of the truth with that? Because it seems like it's conspiracy theory after conspiracy theory about her. Did she really? Did she really hold up that placard? Um, or was she told to put up hold of that placard? Russian state TV is never live, so there's always a five minute gap to stop anything like that happening. I'd just love to know your opinion. What What do you think is the truth about that incident? And is it possible for 
fact checking to get to the bottom of that. I mean, we have to look at the information just just on the face value of like what what can we verify? We can verify that it was that person. Uh, we can verify that uh, she had uh, the sign that she had, uh, which said you're being lied to on this news or something like that. And we know the fact that she was, I think she was in a court uh, the, the day later or something. She had a lawyer. So these are the, like, the, the, the basic informations that we, that we can verify. But what we cannot do is we cannot read someone's mind we cannot verify or, or like um, uh, we cannot read their mind and say this is what they intended or or this is what they want or this is what they mean that's something we cannot do like the whole thing about bill gates wants to put microchips in your arms or uh, through vaccines or gps trackers and everything we cannot read bill gates mind and say no, uh, Bill Gates can, doesn't want or something like that. Because, yeah, maybe he does. <laughs> I don't know. But we, what we can do is, is it possible? Like, can you put like a tracker in, uh, like a, a GPS tracker? But then rises the question of like, okay, what if the, the battery of the GPS is, I mean, the GPS <laughs> chip is out of battery, then, then what happens? Um, so those are the kind of things that are not um, uh, probable that, uh, that, you know, a GPS tracker through vaccine um, technologically then, rather than what the intention is of Bill Gates. Um, so, so we have to be aware of the limits of our, uh, uh, of our investigation and of our findings, because sometimes we are tempted to answer broader questions than the specifics of what we are investigating. Because in a broader sense, it's not, it's not about, um, it's not just about the, the information, but it's, it's also about what kind of emotion it evokes to people. How, how do you put your facts in those online environments and and how do we make sure that facts will combat over emotions so we spoke earlier about those cases right about the the car that was exploded and and there was a corpse inside with their head cut open in the morgue um so so we would make a fact check about it and say that's not actually true it's those are uh, corpses from the morgue but we have to be aware that like people who created it actually wanted um, to create the emotion that hey the ukrainians are bad and the russian people are the victim that's the kind of idea that they want to implant in people's mind so in that sense even though uh, we have proved that specific fact that it's not true there has been a lot of much longer uh, the idea being planted ukrainians are bad russians are good and so people for people who believe that ukrainians are bad russians are good okay maybe on this specific fact they'll think okay this is uh, okay this one made up but it doesn't change the their their general minds the same thing with my mom and dad they still think the Russians are good and the Ukrainians are bad. And so even if I have, uh, you know, proven that specific thing is true, that the, the idea is planted and it's, it's much more um, enduring than uh, just, you know, uh, fact-checking and giving a different facts about specific claims. Thanks, Amra. And, you know, what really comes across from talking to you today is how how, how serious and how diligent you are in your work and really getting to the truth and proving the truth with hard evidence and facts, which is, which is really fantastic. And I'm gonna ask you the same very hypothetical question we asked Olivier, which is because you, you clearly care about, about making a difference. So if you had a magic wand and you could just wave it to solve the issues that we're dealing with today, what, what would you do? If I had a magic wand and do 
just one thing and and be like something that could be realistically possible uh, even in unrealistically possible i think i would create some kind of a like a a, a social media curfew or something like that like uh, uh, certain times in a day that you cannot use social media or like even like an internet curfew or something like that like i've seen that that analyzing a lot of these groups and, and fringe thing uh, movements and like yeah, people who have a lot of time and who have nothing else to do they're the ones mostly pulled into those kind of rap, uh, uh, rap uh, rabbit holes of uh, conspiracy theories and and, uh, and and misinformation and and stuff like that so yeah maybe a curfew might help thanks amra yeah i'll take that curfew i think i think we could all probably probably do with a, a you know break every now and then thanks a million amra for for joining us on zooming in on hate and um and for completing our third episode and if you'd like to subscribe to our mailing list go to www.eooh.eu and we'll let you know about the next episode or join us on twitter and linkedin to continue the conversation yeah and also make sure to check out some of the special episodes we've recorded over the past weeks uh, we've got an interesting one on influencers and reporting on the war in ukraine um, the elections in france and also the history and divisions between ukraine and russia in the meantime, we will be probably uploading more. So stay tuned, check out the website, subscribe to the email list. And as always, a very special shout out to our funder. And that's the European Commission's Rights, Equality and Citizenship Program by DG Justice. So thanks everybody for listening in. Thanks Amra and Olivier for sharing your insights today. It's been really, really enjoyable. Thank you so much. And we'll see you next time. Bye bye.